0: It's Tech Biter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 315 for the 21st of October, 2012. It's almost Halloween, and maybe you're thinking about buying a new computer before the end of the year. If you've ever tried to figure out how to use Adobe Lightroom and Adobe Photoshop or Photoshop Elements together, I have good news for you. A surprising number of websites are unsafe, but a Swiss agency says there's a solution. And in short circuits, are you ready for office 2013? The digitizing of America continues, and we're about a week away from Windows 8. Computer sales usually increase in the fourth quarter, and there are lots of reasons for that. There are seasonal purchases around the various year-end holidays for home computers, and businesses whose fiscal years coincide with the calendar year often by near the end of the year once they've analyzed profits for the year. This year, there's another compelling reason to think about a new computer in the fourth quarter. Windows 8 will be released later this month. If you're thinking about building or buying a new computer, there are several points that should be considered. If you'll buy from a big box store or one of the big manufacturers, your choices are going to be limited, but if you build your own computer, most computer stores such as Micro Center do have build-it-yourself supplies, or if you work with a custom computer builder such as TCR in Pickerington or Lancaster, Ohio, you have a lot more choices. When it comes to custom-fitting a computer, having more choices is always better than having limited choices. First and foremost, you should think about how you use the computer. If you're a die-hard gamer to whom milliseconds are critical in blasting those competitors, you'll want the fastest components you can find. If you're a professional or advanced amateur photographer or videographer, you are going to want a computer with a lot of hard drive space and a gigantic amount of memory. Computers that I've just described tend to be expensive. On the other hand, if your primary uses are email, web browsing, and word processing, you might be a candidate for a computer that can be purchased for just a few hundred dollars. Prices have changed so much in the past five years that you'll probably find you can replace a $1,500 computer with a $500 computer, maybe a $300 computer, that has more memory and more storage space than what you paid for half a decade ago but wait, as they say on late night television, there's more. You can't, of course, create a computer that doesn't age. No matter how much hardware you buy today, advances in software will eventually swap it. You can, however, take some things into consideration. If you know you'll need a lot of disk space, make sure that you have enough internal connections and space inside the case for more drives. Because memory is the least expensive way to improve system performance, you'll also want to make sure there's a way to upgrade the RAM. The system board is often not given much consideration, but think about this. It's what controls your selection of other components. The big manufacturers tend to skimp on power supplies. An engineer will add up all the power requirements of what they plan to put in the box, and then they'll add maybe 10% to make sure the computer, as manufactured, has enough power. But what if you add something? It's easy to install more hardware than the basic power supply can accommodate. High-end video cards may require an 800-watt power supply, and your 200-watt standard power supply will malfunction under a load like that. A larger power supply will provide better quality power, and it might even be quieter than the standard, cheap power supply. And speaking of quiet, consider adding extra fans. Now, I know fans typically aren't thought of as being quiet, but stick with me for a moment. Your CPU will undoubtedly have a fan attached. High-end video cards usually have fans. It's possible to add an extra fan inside the case to push air around. The power supply will have a fan, but an additional exhaust fan to pull warm air out of the computer is a worthwhile addition. And here's how you got a quiet fan. Cheap fans are noisy, but you can spend really just a few dollars more and obtain superior cooling and quiet operation. And think about what you'll attach to the computer. In the old days, most of the connectors were in the back. But most people have digital cameras these days, and it's a lot easier to connect the camera or the card reader if you have a USB plug on the front of the case. Or consider using the space that would have once been used to house a floppy disk drive for a built-in card reader. Make sure any of the connectors are up to date, too. Your main board should support USB 3.0. I was going to qualify that statement and say that you should ensure that you have 3.0 support if you plan to install any USB 3.0 devices, but that would be short-sighted. Within the next three to five years, that's the expected service life of a computer, you will probably buy something that will expect a USB 3.0 connection. So be sure it comes with the front panel connectors right now, and maybe some back panel connectors that are USB 3.0.2 instead of standard USB 2. Some cases include external serial ATA connectors. At one time, these were important, but they are less so with the advent of USB 3.0. Still, if you own any external drives that need a SATA connection, you'll probably need at least one connector on the back, or maybe even on the front. Internal disk drives may connect directly to the computer's main board, which will have a built-in disk controller. If disk performance is important to you, and audio, photo, and video enthusiasts take note here, be sure that the on-board controller can handle the throughput you need, or buy a dedicated disk controller that will. And don't skimp on the case, but don't buy too much either. Don't buy a tall tower with space for six hard drives if you just need one or two bigger isn't better. Determine how many drives you think you'll need, and then buy a case with maybe one or two extra slots, just in case. One of the things that many people who build their own computers overlook, and one of my primary reasons for having a shop such as TCR build my computers, is cable management. The more stuff you stuff into the computer, the more cables you'll have connecting that stuff to other stuff. Cables get in the way. Unless managed, they can block airflow around components, and they can even bump into a fan, stop the fan, and eventually cause a serious component failure. Side note here, is any component failure anything other than serious? If you're building the computer, take time to bundle the cables with wire ties, and then make sure that they're routed in a way that will keep them out of trouble. Although building a computer isn't particularly difficult, it is easy enough to miss a connection, and then when you power the system on for the first time, it doesn't work. Locating the problem can be a challenge for an inexperienced builder, so this is yet another reason that I prefer working with a custom builder, and I recommend it unless you're really comfortable troubleshooting computer problems. Whether you build a computer yourself, have someone build it for you, or buy a mass-market computer from a big-box store, planning and forethought will ensure that you buy what you need And in the long term, that will save both money and frustration. You've probably heard funny stories about some old guy in Maine who, when you ask him for directions on how to get somewhere, will say, Eh, you can't get there from here! And maybe you feel that way, sometimes when you're trying to use products by Adobe. Adobe has a dizzying array of applications for use with digital cameras. There's Photoshop CS6 that seemingly does everything. And there's Lightroom that manages to accomplish some tasks with greater ease of use than Photoshop. Add to this mix Photoshop Elements, which includes a few tricks that aren't present in either Lightroom or Photoshop CS6. And then there's the Media Organizer, Bridge, and the RAW Image plugin that works with Photoshop, Camera Raw. Maybe you've tried to figure out how all of these pieces work together, and maybe you've been frustrated. and Maybe you thought, eh, you can't get there from here. Well, now there's an answer, and the answer comes from Jan Kabili. Jan Kabili comes to Photoshop via a route that you might consider unusual. I know I do. She has a degree from Stanford Law School. Jan is also one of the best Photoshop trainers you could ever hope to find because she doesn't allow other aspects of the various programs to get in the way of the point that she's teaching. Presentation, after all, is the mark of a good lawyer. And in addition to the law degree, she's a photographer with a Master of Fine Arts degree from the University of Colorado at Boulder. You'll find a six-minute section of Jan's two-and-a-half-hour course on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In this section, Jan explains why you might want to use Lightroom and Photoshop together. Make sure to check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Jan shows how to combine both programs and why it's important. In short, Lightroom can quickly and easily make changes that affect the entire image, exposure, and color balance, for example. Photoshop, on the other hand, excels in pixel-level editing. After watching this program, some photographers might decide to use Lightroom as their primary organizational tool and Photoshop preprocessor. And that wouldn't be a bad idea. And in fact, I consider that to be an excellent idea because Lightroom includes everything that Adobe Camera Raw can do. That means the initial organization and processing can all happen in Lightroom. Then, only the images that need specific pixel-level changes can be exported to and edited in Photoshop. Lightroom makes it possible to pass any image over to Photoshop, and Jan demystifies the differences between how this process works for RAW files and how it works for JPEG files. The course begins with details on how to set up the two programs for maximum compatibility. This is probably where most photographers have become confused in the past. Eh, You can't get there from here. The final chapter demonstrates several real-world scenarios for using Lightroom and Photoshop together. As with most lynda.com programs, using Lightroom and Photoshop together includes some videos that are available to members and non-members alike. One of those free sessions deals with passing non-RAW photos from Lightroom to Photoshop. It's an eight-minute segment, and you'll find that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. Well, you don't visit porn sites so you're not worried about malware being served to your computer. Surprise! Most porn sites are clean. That's because the operators want you to come back and they want you to spend money. They're really not interested in infecting your computer or stealing your information. But a standard business site might be infected. Swiss Radio International recently discussed the process of distributing malware via what's become known as drive-by infections. As it turns out, Swiss sites are closely monitored, and they're among the cleanest in the world, at least according to Swiss Radio International. The Swiss, of course, are not the only people who have protective measures in place. Many current browsers have built-in functions that will refuse to display a page if it's considered to be dangerous. Here's a little section of Swiss Radio International's report. Some sites have got malicious code hidden in them that can infect a computer. The consequences can be serious. Personal data and passwords may be stolen or the whole system crash. Swiss Radio was quoting IT expert Michael Hausding, who belongs to the Computer Emergency Response Team at SWITCH. That's the organization that looks after Switzerland's Internet access. Hausding says his job is to block infected sites and prevent the spread of malware and other harmful code. Organizations such as CERT attempt to identify problem sites and then provide information that browsers can use to block them. According to the most recent report of Panda Security Company, Swiss Radio says, Switzerland is the country with the least number of infected computers in the world. This is a serious problem because of how cheap it is. You can simply buy a campaign that will poison hundreds of websites, so that simply visiting the site will result in your computers being infected. The rogue website will look the same as always, but hidden code can install viruses and Trojan horses on computers that visit. TechBiter Worldwide has never suffered such an attack, but even so, we've taken some protective measures. The site uses SiteLock and CloudFlare, both of which provide constant surveillance of the site to thwart attempts by people who want to enroll your computer in a botnet. The Swiss radio report notes that problems most often originate from sites that most people consider to be safe. Contrary to popular belief, porn sites or those offering pirated music, films, programs, and so on, are not necessarily the most dangerous, the report says. Malicious code can just as easily be found on the websites of voluntary organizations, sports clubs, and small businesses. The problem occurs when the website developer uses out-of-date software or poor passwords. We do our best at TechBiter Worldwide to keep the technology up to date, and the passwords we use are all designed to be very hard to crack. CERT receives about 50 reports each week about sites that are unknowingly hosting malware. Swiss Radio says once they've confirmed that these pages really can infect a computer, the CERT experts inform the owner or the administrator of the domain name. If CERT receives no response within 24 hours, it makes changes that will render the site unavailable. The report says that CERT eliminated nearly 3,000 rogue sites in the past year. Although other services exist to perform these kinds of services, CERT seems to be the only government-sponsored operation in the world. In short circuits, here comes Office 2013, ready or not... The next version of Microsoft Office has just been released to manufacturing, and that means it'll show up on store shelves and on computers by the end of the year. Office 2013 looks much different from Office 2010 or 2007, but much remains the same under the Surface. I've been using a preview version since about mid-year, and overall, I like what I see, but there are some rough edges in the preview version. Maybe these have been removed in the RTM version but I haven't been able to obtain that yet. Possibly the most improved product is OneNote, an application that I've been using for years and that I find absolutely indispensable. OneNote 2013 allows users to embed entire Excel spreadsheets, and if you update the embedded document, the actual Excel document is also updated. Searching within OneNote has always been powerful, with options to search the current note or the entire programs database, but now OneNote allows you to search for words that are in graphics files, too. This optical character recognition function is definitely welcome. Office 2013, of course, has the Metro or Modern or Windows 8 look and feel. The name keeps changing, and I wish they'd pick one. It can be a bit of a problem for desktop and notebook users. Sometimes it's just a little difficult to tell where the controls are on Office 2013 applications, and as a result, you might click the close button for an application that's behind the Word or Excel document instead of the button on the Word or Excel document that you want to click. You'll just overlook it. It is a minimalist look, and that's something that may take some users by surprise. Adobe Acrobat offers the ability to edit PDF documents, but now Office can also edit PDFs. Generally speaking, I consider it to be a bad practice to edit PDFs, and I feel it's a lot better to edit the original document in Word, Excel, PowerPoint, InDesign, or whatever application you use to create the document. Still, sometimes you have only the PDF and no source document to work from. Or you might have the source document, but no application that'll edit it. In this case, the ability to edit a PDF is very welcome. I have developed kind of a love-hate relationship with Word's new Read mode. By default, any downloaded documents open in this view, and it's handy if you don't need to make any changes to the document, but I usually do. The ribbon and Word's toolbars disappear, and the only way to get them back is to select Edit under the View Toolbar. It only takes a second, but it's kind of an annoyance. Although this is a good way to view a document, I almost always need to switch to the edit view so that I can actually do something with it. So, is this new version of Office 2013 perfect? Well, obviously no. Has any version of Office ever been perfect? Also no. But more of the changes are improvements, at least from my perspective. The digitizing of America continues, and Newsweek will not ring in the new year, at least not as a print publication. Instead, the final issue of Newsweek will go on sale on the 31st of December 2012. Now, it'll probably carry a January 2014 publication date, but anyway, way you look at it, it's still the end of the line for Newsweek in print. This is not a surprise. Newsweek nearly vanished two years ago, but at the last minute, The Washington Post sold the magazine to Sidney Harmon, and it merged with The Daily Beast. Despite the improved content, ad pages continued to decline. The Daily Beast and Newsweek now attract, according to Newsweek's website, more than 10 million unique online visitors per month. The magazine reaches 14 million readers across America, and millions more through its international editions. The second largest news weekly magazine in the United States, Newsweek rarely surpassed time in circulation or revenue. Tina Brown, the editor of the Daily Beast, has also served as editor at Newsweek for the past two years, and this week she was the one who announced that the online-only version of Newsweek Global will debut in January. Tina Brown explained it this way, and I quote, Our business has been increasingly affected by the challenging print advertising environment. While Newsweek's online and e-reader content has built a rapidly growing audience through Apple, Kindle, Zinio, and Nook stores, as well as on the Daily Beast, tablet use has grown rapidly among our readers, and with it the opportunity to sustain editorial excellence through swift, easy digital distribution, a superb global platform for our award-winning journalism, by year's end, tablet users in the United States are expected to exceed 70 million. That's up from just 13 million two years ago, end quote. The trend is clear, and Brown cited a study recently reported here by the Pew Research Center. Currently, 39% of Americans say they get their news from an online source, according to Pew Research. In our judgment, says Brown, we have reached a tipping point at which we can most efficiently and effectively reach our reader's through an all-digital format. This was not the case just two years ago. It will increasingly be the case in the years ahead. Quote. Andrew Sullivan, who writes for the Daily Beast, seems to have come to the same conclusion I did. If newspapers and magazines can't find a way to stop printing, they're doomed. You'll find a link to Sullivan's comments on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And this is a story that'll be repeated more frequently, I suspect, as the old media attempt to find a place in the future. I hope this all works out for Newsweek, because there's a danger that news-gathering organizations such as this won't really be appreciated until they no longer exist. Russians had two leading publications in the Soviet era, Pravda, which means truth, and Izvestia, which means news or intelligence. And the Russians had a saying... In Pravda, there is no news, and in Izvestia, no truth. That works better in Russian, but you get the idea. Oh boy, this coming Friday, the beginning of a new era or end of the world. Friday, October 26th, 2012. That's the day Windows 8 will be available on new computers and on store shelves for upgrading Windows 7 computers. Why Friday? And how do you view this day? Is it like any other Friday or is it something special? Will stores be open late so that people can buy the new operating system at midnight? That's what happened for Windows 95. But is Windows 8 perceived as sufficiently different for stores to stay open late? Those who are thinking about buying new computers might want to do so at midnight. Those who are upgrading existing computers will be, understandably, less enthusiastic because Windows 8 brings no really dramatic new features to computers that have no touchscreen capabilities. Faster boot time, of course. Faster load times for programs. Faster shutdown. Faster transition to sleep mode. All those are good. Maybe Windows 8 even brings better reliability than Windows 7. And Windows 7 is pretty reliable. Now, these are all good features, but hardly something that people will run out to stores at midnight to obtain. And why Friday? Well, if you're a home user, and I suspect that home users are the people most likely to upgrade immediately, the Friday release date gives you the entire weekend to work on the upgrade and the follow-up configurations that most users want to make to ensure that the operating system does what they want it to do. My initial thought is that if you're happy with Windows 7 and you don't have a touchscreen computer, there's really no compelling reason to upgrade immediately. Although I upgraded two laptop computers to Windows 8 the day the RTM, the Release to Manufacturing Code, became available, I think I'll wait a little bit to upgrade the desktop, but I still plan to do it before the end of the year. Many tech writers have said that corporate buyers will shun Windows 8 as they did Windows Vista, but that might not be the case. Even Microsoft now admits that Vista was a poorly designed operating system and that Windows 7 was really Vista done the way it should have been done in the first place. In this regard, Windows 8 is evolutionary, but deciding to use what's essentially the same user interface on devices ranging from phones all the way up to servers is revolutionary. For this reason alone, Windows 8 is going to start showing up in offices far sooner than corporate chief information officers might like. In the 1980s, corporate IT managers were blindsided by employees who expensed Apple II computers and brought them into the office so that they could use VisiCalc. Microsoft's Surface tablets will soon be available. The Windows 8 phone will soon be available. Hybrid tablet laptop computers will soon be available. And guess what operating system is going to be on all of those? If you're a CIO, 2013 could be a very entertaining year. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Lynn and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.